Welcome back, listeners, to another Doctors Who Create podcast. This podcast is brought to you through a collaboration with an organization called Equal Treatment. Today, we talk healthcare, specifically emergency care for end stage renal disease in the undocumented population. What does it look like and what are its implications? Let's go to Amanda and Hattie to find out. My name's Amanda Labora. And I'm Hattie Houston Patterson. And we're co founders of Equal Treatment, which is a medical education platform devoted to evidence based curriculum around healthcare disparities. And this is a co production with Doctors Who Create and is the first in a series about healthcare for undocumented patients. And we are very fortunate to have with us today uh, Dr. Owain Wen, an assistant professor of medicine at UCSF, previously at UT Southwestern, whose research focuses focuses on the nexus of social determinants of health, hospital readmissions, and healthcare costs. Thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Wen. Thank you, ladies, for having me. <laughs> it's a pleasure. Today, we're going to be discussing a paper that came out in JAMA Internal Medicine in December of 2018 called The Association of Scheduled Versus Emergency-Only Dialysis with Health Outcomes and Costs in Undocumented Immigrants with End-Stage Renal Disease. And so from the perspective of healthcare for the undocumented, documented, this paper really piqued our interest. You know, most patients in the U.S. who have end-stage renal disease are eligible for Medicaid or Medicare coverage to get dialysis. And right now, we understand that getting dialysis three times a week is the standard of care. Currently, though, in all but 10 states, our undocumented patients are not eligible for dialysis. And instead, they seek emergency dialysis through the emergency room. And in general, the dialysis treatment seems like it's only initiated when these patients are really sick. So what has your experience with that been? So I would say it's not just emergency-only dialysis is not given just when patients are very sick. It's when they are literally on the precipice of death. So this is, I think, something that's worth discussing because I think people who are in states or in practice settings where they haven't seen this sort of assume that, oh, emergency-only dialysis means people come to the emergency department and there's like a special place for them and they can get care there. And that's not the case at all. Basically, you know, what I saw, at least in my experience at Parkland, was that people would come into the emergency room and they would get routed through care there like anyone else. So they, I think in medical school, we all learn about the indications for emergency dialysis, AEIOU. So these patients, same, same, treated exactly the same as anyone else. They get triaged. And if they may meet one of those AEIOU criteria, that's when they get one dialysis treatment, mostly just to make them better enough so that they're no longer on the brink of death, and then they get discharged from the emergency department. So in your experience, when the standard of care is to get dialysis three times a week, of course, in that situation on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you shouldn't be suffering the consequences of your renal disease. We should be trying to avoid those. Um, And so in the emergency room, do you find that patients are turned away because they're not sick enough, even if they would be appropriate for dialysis? They would be, it depends, I think, on a lot of things related to care delivery in the emergency department. And that's not to say that um, ED providers don't do everything they can to care for every patient that comes through. I think a lot of it just boils down to logistics. How busy is it in the ED that day? Is it really an emergency? 
So I think for this population of patients, they come into the emergency department anywhere from once every week to every two weeks or to multiple times in the same week. And so they actually form relationships and a lot of rapport with the emergency department providers. Like they, the physicians and nurses there know the patients by name and then, and the patients know everyone else. So I think people kind of develop a sense uh, also kind of outside of the, you know, the traditional clinical criteria of like how sick does somebody look that day. I think certainly if they meet the traditional criteria of like acidosis, clear electrolyte abnormalities, severe volume overload or severe uremia, they will get dialysis. But sometimes there's a gray zone, right? So like if someone's uremic, but they're not encephalopathic and it looks scary on, you know, in terms of labs, but you're not 100% sure if they have symptoms, that might be someone on a busy day in the emergency department that would get turned away and told, you know, come back tomorrow and we'll see if you're sick enough. On a less busy day, they might just go ahead and give that person dialysis. So I think there's definitely a gray zone, but, you know, turning people away, I don't think comes out of malice necessarily. I think it's just some of the realities of practicing in um, busy urban and maybe rural safety net hospitals as well. Right. And so the study that you did was centered, as you say, in a safety net hospital, Parkland Hospital, which is one of the famous large Dallas hospitals serving a huge catchment um, population. And historically, these undocumented patients who accessed care through Parkland would get dialysis on an emergency-only basis. However, it sounds like there was a charitable assistance program set up through private insurance companies that enabled these undocumented patients to begin to access dialysis on a scheduled basis. Yeah, so Parkland and a lot, basically almost any hospital is obligated under federal law to provide emergency care to anyone who presents in the emergency department through a law, law called the MTALA law, which was passed in the mid 80s. And so oftentimes when people show up who don't have any other means of gaining access to health care, including undocumented immigrants, but can also include, you know, permanent residents of the U.S. and legal documented, legally documented immigrants who may just not qualify for other programs. If, they sh- if anyone shows up with an emergency, Parkland and any other hospital is obligated to provide emergency level care to stabilize Patients. So that's where the practice of emergency only dialysis sort of arose from. The program in Dallas is actually kind of an interesting program. It, it's kind of the right convergence of circumstances that happened after uh, ACA went, I'll call it, it went live in 2014. Basically, one clause of ACA abolished the pre existing conditions exclusion, meaning before ACA, if you had a pre existing condition, insurance companies could deny you coverage. After ACA, that condition went away. So even if you had a pre-existing condition, you could potentially get by any form of insurance, private health insurance. So for people who had ESRD before ACA, it was very hard to buy health insurance that was affordable. After ACA in 2014, you could potentially get health insurance coverage. The caveat was even though the premiums might not have been as outrageously expensive as they were before. They were still pretty expensive for people who are working class or poor working class since premiums for a lot of insurance uh, plans will range on the order of about four to $600 per month. So, but at least they couldn't potentially buy insurance. The second part of the puzzle was in the Dallas area and I think in other Texas markets as well, there are a number of nonprofit organizations 
that had what were called charitable premium assistance programs. In Dallas, it was a program specifically targeted at patients with end-stage kidney disease. So if folks could find a pro, uh, an insurance plan that they could apply for, this nonprofit would pay the monthly insurance premium so people could get health insurance coverage to get dialysis-related care. So that's what happened with this group of patients. Wow, that's a truly unique program that was kind of you guys were in the right place at the right time to take a look at that. And it looks like the primary outcomes you guys assessed as part of your study were death, healthcare utilization defined as visits, hospitalizations, and hospital days. And then you also took a look at the per person cost every month. Uh, and that was based on average Medicare reimbursement rates for ED visits, uh, hospitalization admissions, and scheduled dialysis. Can you elaborate a little bit more on why you chose those particular outcomes? Yeah, we picked ED visits and hospitalizations because those tend to be among the biggest drivers of cost in this group of patients. Those are the most expensive settings in which to receive care. So that's why we focused on that. We expected upfront that there would be a drop-off in ED visits because basically in this group of patients, what you're doing is you're shifting the site of dialysis. Or people, you know, people who used to get dialysis in the emergency department now are getting dialysis at an outpatient dialysis center. So we knew that there was going to be some kind of reduction there. Um, what we didn't know is if that shift in sites of care would actually lead to a reduction in healthcare costs. And we actually were also were not sure that hospitalizations and hospital days would actually go down after people enrolled in scheduled dialysis. And part of the reason for our, our uncertainty was a lot of the, actually most of the people in our study were people who'd had end-stage renal disease for about six, seven years. So they were entering into the study as people who were pretty frail and very physically ill to begin with. So we thought, well, maybe we'll see a difference. Maybe we won't. And then definitely we're not expecting to see a difference there, but we thought it was an important outcome to look at because we knew, or at least we hypothesized up front that even though this is a group of people who are relatively young, um, in, in terms of healthcare, at least these are people in their late 40s, and early to mid 50s, even though they were relatively young, based on our anecdotal experience, we thought that there was probably a fairly high mortality rate. And so we looked just to look, but honestly, I don't think we were expecting to see a huge difference because we thought, well, these are people who've been sick for a long time. How is enrolling them in scheduled dialysis for a couple months to a year really going to make a big difference? And how did you choose that time period to follow them over? One year is, I think it was just made sense to us in terms of being able to get data that was relatively complete. So I think it was, it was very pragmatic in terms of choice of timeline. I think the other thing that made a little this a little bit challenging was at about nine months out from the start of our study, there was actually a second enrollment wave. And so a lot of people who were in the emergency only group actually ended up getting into scheduled dialysis partway through the study. So we're like, well, we could truncate it at nine months, but actually we thought if we extended it and used an intention to treat approach that it actually made our findings stronger because basically we were saying, well, instead of considering that group of people who crossed over into scheduled dialysis, we're just assuming that, you know, they're just going to be in the emergency only group for the entire 12 months. So any reduction in their utilization or any improvement in their mortality at the end of the the last three months of their, their 12-month follow-up period would actually appear to make emergency-only dialysis look better. And although you did not anticipate to see a difference in deaths, you did find an absolute risk reduction of 14%, 
with an adjusted hazard ratio at 12 months of five. And you also found in terms of utilization, 5.2 fewer ED visits per month, 1.6 fewer hospitalizations over six months, and 9.9 fewer hospital days over six months. And then you guys were also able to show a total cost per person per month uh, decrease by an average of $4,316. But then interestingly, since the emergency-only dialysis group had an average increase of $1,452, this resulted in a net savings of about $5,758, or uh, in other words, $72,000 per person per year. Yeah, that's enormous. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I was so curious about these findings because obviously, you know, end-stage renal disease is a chronic and generally worsening disease. And so even in the absence of an intervention, you would expect people to get sicker, go to the hospital more. I was just, I thought this was really astonishing. Yeah, I, I agree because we thought the same thing. And on top of that, I think We thought, hey, these are people who are starting out pretty sick. So, you know, this was a study we definitely wanted to take on in terms of, you know, we thought we could show some kind of difference with ED utilization. But I think the other findings were also very unexpected for us. I want to highlight because I think sometimes findings get lost in the very dry language of research. So I want to highlight a couple of the results that you brought up. So first of all, the absolute risk reduction of 14% in deaths at one year is insane. That's like an insanely large magnitude of benefit. And so I think we we brought this up in the discussion. If you take the absolute risk reduction, you can calculate a number called the number needed to treat, which is basically the one over the absolute risk reduction. So when you do one over 14%, the number needed to treat is seven, which means for every seven people that get scheduled dialysis for one year, that person is surviving that year. And so just to put that into context, the way you interpret numbers needed to treat, I would say like, you know, a really great number needed to treat, basically smaller is better. A number needed to treat that's on the order of one to like 50 is like a blockbuster drug. I'd say maybe even one to a hundred is a blockbuster drug. So just to give you some context, the number needed to treat for aspirin in the context of an ST elevation MI is 42. And that's one of the most effective treatments we have in modern medicine. So to say like that scheduled dialysis has a number needed to treat of seven at one year in preventing deaths is just insane. It's like, it's better than any drug that's out there right now, period. Thank you so much for that. I think it really puts it into perspective for our listeners as well. Yeah, it's just insane. that it's. And again, this is not a finding we expected because these are people who started out sick. I think other point I wanted to make was the cost. So basically the cost savings of about $70,000 per person per year is also enormous. I think some of the context of this study, besides sort of the, you know, the political overtones of providing care to undocumented immigrants, the other argument against providing scheduled dialysis to this very vulnerable group of patients has always been, you know, scheduled dialysis is very costly. On average, the number that gets quoted is, about eight, you know, scheduled dialysis costs about $80,000 a year per person. And so it's one of the costliest therapies we have for chronic disease in medicine. And so the argument's always been like, why would we throw that kind of money at illegal aliens? And so I think what's compelling about our cost findings is that 
we're finding that, yes, scheduled dialysis is expensive, but letting people get care through the emergency room and having them deal with all the complications of that care, we're paying for that as well. And that's even more expensive than providing um, undocumented immigrants with access to scheduled dialysis. So I think it's just something to think about. It truly astounding. And you know, like you were saying that this is obviously, this is a population group that has become the center of increasingly contentious debates in our country. For many reasons, this is sort of a forgotten or invisible population. And when this population is brought up, it's often questioned whether or not they should be receiving certain healthcare interventions. What in particular about this population drew your attention and made you interested in focusing on on their outcomes? I think a couple things. One was this is a very personal topic for me because I actually trained at Parkland. Uh, this is where I did my residency and I also spent a number of years there on faculty. And so these are patients I actually took care of and saw on the front lines. And I have to say, I think there's nothing more heart-wrenching than knowing that you're providing someone with substandard care and still having that person and their family come to you every day and just be so thankful and so grateful that you're helping them in any way. I can't even describe the kind of angst I felt about that. And actually one of my colleagues, research colleagues, uh, Lilia Cervantes at the University of Colorado has published a study last year, also in JAMA Internal Medicine, on sort of physician perspectives on caring for undocumented immigrants with end-stage renal disease. And that's definitely worth a read because I'd say a lot of us who have cared for patients in this population definitely found that that paper echoed a lot of what, you know, we were going through and felt. So I think that was the first reason, which was a very up-close and personal care experience that I had. The second thing was, I think my personal background is that my parents were refugees from Vietnam they were boat people. And so I think I just identified a lot with being an other, an immigrant in a lot of ways. And I was like, well, I got, we got lucky. Our fan, my parents were refugees and they got granted a visa and then permanent resident status and then became citizens of the U.S. But, you know, they could have easily not been granted authorization to stay in the U.S. I think for me, like, you know, it's really easy to call people undocumented immigrants or illegal aliens and turn them into a menacing other. But, you know, at the end of the day, they're just people who are trying to make a living and contribute to their communities. And so I think those are the two main reasons that I really took on the study and why the topic really resonates with me. Thank you so much for taking an interest in this patient population and giving us this amazing paper to be able to talk about. In terms of the best that we have to offer in terms of quality of care, in terms of cost, in terms of hospital usage, it's clear to us that scheduled hemodialysis is the way to go and is the best thing for our patients. Um, But I wonder if you could speak a little bit to what does that difference look like in patients' lives when they transition from having emergency-only sporadic dialysis to having scheduled dialysis as someone who took care of these patients? Yeah, so I just want to be clear that this is not something I've necessarily studied in a systematic way, so this is veering a little bit tangential to the study, but I will say anecdotally and from what I've seen, a lot of our patients who end up on emergency-only dialysis are people who are working age and who are in the U.S. to basically work, provide for their families, 
and try to make a better life, a life for themselves, as well as, you know, and trying to improve the lives of their family members. So I think what scheduled dialysis does, besides the numbers that we have in the paper, or at least from what I've seen, is it gives patients back some semblance of control over their lives because now they're not spending, they're not going to the emergency department, you know, a couple of times a week and then hoping that they're going to get dialysis there. And by the way, when they go to the emergency room, sometimes they spend all day there, 10, 12, 18 hours waiting for the emergency department evaluation. So instead of doing that and having this sort of unpredictable schedule where they can't really hold down a job, a lot of patients who ended up on scheduled dialysis said, hey, I was actually able to go back to work pick up some part-time job. I can spend time with my kids. I mean, basically they can get back to their lives. And I think that's really powerful. (laughs) I think maybe the most striking anecdote that I remember from a patient that I took care of was, I remember he was in the hospital because he had an infection of his dialysis line. And this guy, I mean, we told him, you need to stay in the hospital because this is a really serious infection. You're going to need IV antibiotics for two weeks. And his first response to me was, he's like, well, who's going to work and take care of my family? I have three kids at home. I work in construction. He was working, I think, 18-hour days. He'd get up at 4 in the morning, get home at 10 at night, and get up the next day to do the same thing while living with end-stage renal disease and while getting emergency-only dialysis. And I just couldn't even imagine the kind of resilience and strength that it would take to do something like that. So for patients like him, getting on scheduled dialysis meant that instead of randomly missing work for two weeks at a time and maybe getting laid off from his job or just not being able to compete for contract jobs, he could at least have a predictable schedule where he could say, hey, these afternoons I have to be out for treatment, but these other days I'm ready and willing to come to work like 110%. I think that's such a good point. In, in the emergency room, we sometimes lose the context of how these diseases impact our patients on a larger scale. And I think that we forget that it's so important for patients to have agency over their disease to whatever degree they can. And being able to schedule dialysis is kind of liberation. So I think it's, you know, like you say, just so important to stay curious about how these diseases and our treatments impact our patients' lives. One thing I wanted to ask you about, more from the perspective of medical ethics, when we're considering cost in how we decide to allocate resources to patients. So obviously in your study, you know, we see that if we provide undocumented patients with scheduled dialysis, we can save the healthcare system about $72,000 a year, which Seems like a win given that we improve mortality, hospital usage, and, you know, possibly improve the experience or sort of the quality of life for our patients. But when I think about undocumented patients, you know, we often think of them as being a more vulnerable population who's less likely to speak up about inadequacies in care for many reasons. And so sort of thinking about weighing those dueling concerns over vulnerability and then considering costs when we consider what these patients should expect from a healthcare system, how do you kind of think about cost? I think that's a very loaded question, and I have to say I'm not qualified to answer that from an ethical perspective. This kind of loops back to why did we pick the outcomes that we picked. I forgot that one of the other reasons we had chosen to look at deaths was because, you know, I think we thought 
you know, we could find a cost savings, but it could be because everyone died. If we're going to look at costs, we should pair it with an analysis of deaths to make sure that that's not the reason you're having cost savings, that basically everyone died. So if you die, you can't cost the health system anything. But, you know, I think it's a really tough balance and I, I can't speak to it from an ethical perspective. And I think for this particular issue, the conclusions are very clear that it's, it's sort of a quadruple win. You're improving quality of life for patients. You're improving survival. You are decreasing healthcare utilization and you're also reducing costs. So I don't think for at least this specific issue, I don't think we had to grapple so much with like, what's the trade-off between how much we're willing to spend on an underserved population versus being faced with the reality that there's clearly a superior treatment in terms of outcomes. I would say, I think in terms of like looking at it from like a safety net health system approach, I think one of the challenges to a safety net hospital or health system is that their mission is always to improve the care of the underserved in whatever region that they're working in. And so I think the way a health system might think about this is how do we achieve the greatest good for the greatest number of people. And so I'd say, you know, even though we presented some of our data here as cost savings, I would say for a health system like Parkland or like other urban safety net systems, I don't know that they would necessarily see like an extra $70,000 in their pocket or an extra like, you know, projected $13 million in their pocket because they placed 100 patients in scheduled dialysis. And so I'd say like the balance between like, you know, cost versus like interventions versus wanting to provide the highest level of care is going to be different from setting to setting. But I would say at least in safety net settings, some of the investment in this type of intervention would be to be able to more equitably and effectively allocate their limited resources to achieve more good for a bigger proportion of the population. Curious to know, it sounds like this patient population was able to enroll in private health care through the nonprofit sector by having these insurance payments subsidized in a way. So it's not really costing the hospital per system per se any money to treat this patient population, but actually saves the hospital system money. I'm wondering, were there any reactions on the part of the hospital system to this data or changes in policies that resulted from this data? Yeah, I would say I think one of the tensions that's been ongoing in the five and a half years since this initial group of patients was enrolled is that obviously insurance companies are not dumb. <laughs> At some point, they realize this is a really expensive population of patients that we're taking on and that we are paying more out in their health care costs in terms of how much it costs to pay for their dialysis versus how much they're paying into the insurance plan and their premiums. And so I think one of the tensions has always been if the insurance company, for whatever reason, finds a way to like not accept these patients, then all of them would come back to the safety net health system. And that's not good for the patients or the health system. So I don't know as much about particulars, and I don't think I would be at liberty to share them, even if I did know them. But certainly there's a lot of conversations at that level. Some states have been able to use emergency Medicaid funds and direct those towards care of undocumented immigrants with end-stage renal disease under the rationale that, you know, these are people who are suffering from a chronic medical condition that's going to require ongoing recurrent care in the emergency department. So it's kind of strange, but basically they're saying these are people who require chronic emergency care, which seems like an oxymoron, but actually is not. 
And so in those states, people have been able to like sort of use this very specific type of funding, emergency Medicaid funding, to come up with longer term solutions for patients. So speaking about the role of policy, the place of undocumented immigrants in the U.S. has become a really hot-button topic. It has been for years, but especially in the current political climate, increasingly polarizing issue. How do you bring everyone to the table to have a discussion about health for this population, given the current political climate? That's like a bazillion dollar question. (laughs) I wish I had a clear answer to that. I don't think there's a way to take the politics out of it. And especially having been someone who was who lived in Texas for a long time, I'm trying to imagine like, how do you take the, the political part of it out of it? And I think it's very hard to do that. I think, you know, what we tried to do with our study was appeal to the economic side of the argument rather than the humanistic and moralistic side of the argument. However you feel about undocumented immigrants politically, it just, it saves you money to take care of them, you know, and it's a very cynical way of looking at it, um, but it's one approach. I don't know if it's the best or most nuanced approach, but I'm afraid I don't have a really good answer to that. I think the main way, I think, is to sort of try to make the economic argument. So I'll leave it at that. No, I think you you bring up a very important point, too, of understanding your audience and sort of understanding who are the stakeholders and what are their interests so that you can answer questions that will allow people to come to the table. And I think this is an article that does that very nicely. So I think, you know, there's many ways to approach that answer, and this is one, and I, I think it's a very compelling one. I think you put that much more eloquently than I did. So thank you for that. So as young physicians or physicians in training, we often see gaps in care for our most vulnerable patients, whether they're undocumented or from segments of our society that have historically not been included in the highest quality care delivery that we can give them. So what advice do you have for us as we're approaching our career and may see these kind of gaps? I think the first thing is to question when you see care that you think is not up to the standard of care. I would say the second thing is to advocate for your patients. And I think that's probably something we do pretty well as as physicians, advocating for the individual patient that's in front of us that we're actually directly caring for. I think the third step and maybe What's the hardest for physicians is thinking about how to advocate for patients on a more systematic level. So that's advocating for change across your own local health system, advocating for change maybe within your region or county, or even advocating for change at a county or national level. I think that's something we're not as great at as physicians, and I think oftentimes something we shrink back from. One thing I've always thought is that For me, I think it's clearly within our role as physicians, and in part it's because if you care for patients that don't really have a voice or don't feel like they have a voice, if you're not speaking out on behalf of those patients and those populations as a physician when you're in a position of power and you have the frontline perspective, you have the ability to speak up for them, if you're not going to be the one that speaks out for those patients, then who will? Because they're not in a position to do so. I would say that's my advice. It's Maybe a little bit lofty if you're thinking about advocacy at a systematic level. I want to quote something one of my mentors told me, which is you don't have to boil the ocean all in one effort. And I think that's also really helpful to think about when you're kind of excited and enthusiastic and just coming out of training and you want to change the world. You don't have to change everything all at once. Sometimes it's 
one small change at a time that leads to bigger change. And so sometimes the advocacy on a systematic level is just sometimes bringing awareness to an issue, doing a podcast like the two of you are doing to raise awareness around issues. My tool is happens to be research. So I try to find opportunities to bring light to issues through research studies. And so I think there's a lot of levers on which you can pull when you're thinking about trying to raise awareness and take steps towards advocating for our patient population on a systematic level. I think, yeah, you're so right when you bring up that medicine is such a hierarchical field that it can feel when you're more junior that you don't have power to change things. But the power you have is the privilege of your education and your social position as a physician. And so even being young, it's important to remember that we have that power and then probably a duty to use that to help our most vulnerable patients who don't have those levers to pull on, as you say. Yeah. And I mean, I always tell trainees that I work with, I'm like, you know, patients see you as a doctor, period. I mean, they know you're a student, but they still see you as a doctor. You walk into their room with their white coat and you're automatically accorded a level of respect and authority and a fair amount of power. So I think it's an incumbent among on all of us to use that to improve the health of our patients. Thank you so much for being a change maker and trying to boil your lake somewhere. (laughs) It's a puddle right now. (laughs) Thank you for that. And really, we were so impressed and grateful for your work. Thank you so much for taking time to speak with us and help us better uh, put your data into context. I also want to take an opportunity to thank Vidya Viswanathan, the founder of Doctors Who Create, and our sound engineer, Shiv Nadkarni, for all the work that they do and stay tuned for the next part of our series on undocumented patients in the United States. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. Oh, it's a pleasure.